Hello, and welcome to the Blue Rose Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema, and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is John T. Hornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. On this week's episode of the show, we're looking at a film that holds a significant amount of nostalgic value for me, dating all the way back to primary school. It's a science fiction classic from the early 1950s, and an adaptation of one of the most seminal pieces of work in the world of literary science fiction, by H.G. Wells. It's a story that's been adapted again and again in just about every medium that you can think of, but today, we're going to be focusing on the 1953 film directed by Byron Haskin, The War of the Worlds. are the often ridiculed flying saucers, are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guys need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant, look! They slash across country like scythes, wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilize their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapons of the super race from the Red Planet. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Guns, tanks, bombs. They're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines got to beat them. All over the world, human beings cower before the onslaught of these unearthly enemies whom no one has ever seen. Panic that sweeps around the globe as the great masses of mankind flee blindly in a headlong stampede of hysteria. First, a recap of the story of the War of the Worlds, and a spoiler warning. This film is 70 years old this year, but if you still haven't seen it and you want to see it unspoiled, pause this podcast and come back after you've seen it. Imprint Media have just put out a wonderful 4K box set, so if you're looking for somewhere to find it, that's a good place to start. Dr. Clayton Forrester, a well-known atomic scientist played by Gene Barry, is out fishing with his mates when a large object falls from the sky and crashes to Earth, near the small town of Linda Rosa, California. 
As the town gathers around the crashed object, an opening appears in it. Three men keeping guard at the site attempt to make peaceful contact, but are vaporised. The US Marine Corps surround the crash site as reports come in of similar crashed objects all over the world, destroying cities. Three Martian war machines emerge from the object, vaporising more people. The Marines open fire, but are unable to penetrate the war machine's force fields. They send the Marines into retreat, and after the Air Force attempt to neutralise the war machines, they too retreat and are annihilated. Forrester and Sylvia, played by Anne Robinson, attempt to flee in a single-engine military plane and crash land in an abandoned farmhouse. As the two of them begin to get to know each other, another cylinder crashes onto the farmhouse, flattening it. A long cable with an eye searches the farmhouse, eventually finding Forrester and Sylvia, but Forrester cuts off the eye with an axe. When a Martian enters the farmhouse and approaches Sylvia, Forrester injures it with the axe, connecting some of its blood on a cloth. They escape moments before the entire farmhouse is obliterated by a Martian heat ray from one of the war machines. Forrester takes the electronic eye and his blood sample to his team at Pacific Tech in an attempt to formulate a way to defeat the Martians. Many of the major capitals of the world have fallen silent, and a global Martian victory is estimated to be no more than six days away. The US government decides to drop an atomic bomb on the original group of war machines, now advancing on Los Angeles from the east. The atomic blast is completely ineffective. The city is evacuated as the war machines continue their advance. The Pacific Tech trucks are stopped by the chaos and crowds, and all of their scientific equipment is destroyed. Forrester, Sylvia, and the rest of the group are separated. In the now completely deserted city, Forrester searches for Sylvia. Based on a story that Sylvia had told him earlier in the film, he deduces that she is probably finding refuge in a church. After searching through a number of different churches, he finds her in one amongst a number of praying and injured survivors. Just as the Martians begin to attack nearby, their war machines suddenly lose power, crashing to the ground, one after another. Forrester sees one of the Martians perishing while attempting to leave its fallen war machine. As the narrator explains, although the Martians were impervious to humanity's weapons, they had no resistance to the bacteria in the atmosphere to which we have long since become immune. After all that men could do had failed, they were destroyed and humanity was saved by the littlest things which God in his wisdom had put on this earth. Those of you who follow the Blue Rose page on Instagram will have seen that the promo for this week included a picture of me as a young kid dressed up as H.G. Wells in front of a homemade war machine model. And for those of you who don't follow the Instagram page, well that's just an incentive enough for you to go and do that right now. You might be wondering why on earth I did this as a 10 year old, which would be entirely reasonable. It's not something that most kids do. The reason I did this, though, is pretty much the reason that I'm covering this film on the podcast, and is inherently linked with my love of film, narrative, genre, and storytelling that has been the through line of my life. 
When I was 10 years old, I moved to primary schools after successfully sitting the test to attend the Opportunity Class Program, or OC, an accelerated class for the final two years of primary school before graduating to high school, with other students from the surrounding area, all of whom were among the highest scoring students in the test. It was incredibly exciting for me, because while I did enjoy school up until that point, to a certain extent, I never quite felt like I was really able to flex some of the muscles that I felt that I had, especially when it came to writing and storytelling. One of the very first things that I learned upon arriving at this new school, with different coloured uniforms, people that looked different to me, much bigger school grounds, way more kids around, was that my teacher, a man by the name of Peter Vader, would require everyone in my class to submit at least one extended piece of writing every term, four times a year, to be published in a class magazine. Not just the students who excelled at writing, not just the students wanting to write short stories all year round, everyone. We published eight of these magazines over my two years in this class, and all eight of them are still at my parents' house somewhere. We also had our very own library, separate from the main library that the rest of the school had access to. It was filled with books that were too mature to be kept in the regular library, a curated collection that was specifically designed to push us along a path of reading that was going to challenge and enrich us. We were recommended books based entirely on our own personal development and tastes, and our reading habits were tracked very closely with the express intent of encouraging us to be active and intentional readers. It was during this time that I started to read science fiction that wasn't Star Wars novelizations or Douglas Adams. Hard science fiction that was ideas-driven and taken very seriously. Science fiction that asked me to grapple with ideas and concepts that my still-developing brain was far too young to fully understand, but I was more than old enough to register that it was doing something to me. I remember reading Gillian Rubinstein's Galax Arena and being really confronted reading Charlie Hickson's The Enemy and being overwhelmed by the post-apocalyptic themes and imagery and perhaps for the first time actually enjoying something that provoked a response of fear. I also remember reading H.G. Wells for the first time, in particular The Time Machine, and being so affected by the idea of travelling to the end of time and seeing the very last sunset on Earth that I would be having dreams about it for weeks afterwards. One other thing that I learned pretty early on was that in year six, we'd be taking part in something called the Night of the Notables, an OC tradition that involves each student choosing a historical figure and dedicating about half a year's research into their lives, preparing a live monologue, sketching a portrait, curating a presentation station from which to present your findings, and then spending a whole evening in character as this historical figure, as parents, other students, teachers and past students would walk around the school hall interacting with these historical figures. This was an incredibly daunting task for me because at the time public speaking was incredibly difficult and scary to me. What I was beginning to discover though was that I loved science fiction. So I decided to study someone who was, as far as I could tell at the time, the grandfather of science fiction as I had been experiencing it, H.G. Wells. It was in the course of studying for this major project, age about 11 I think, that I first saw the film that we're talking about today. But by the time I saw this film, I'd already encountered this story in two other mediums. H.G. Wells' seminal novel, first published in 1897, and the Orson Welles narrated radio play that first aired in 1938. The Steven Spielberg film starring Tom Cruise had also come out at this point in time, but my parents had decided that that version was probably too scary for me. And to be honest, I think they're probably right. 
The first thing that I heard about the Orson Welles version of this story was that it caused real panic for people listening to the story on their radios, thinking that what they were listening to was real. In retrospect, I'm struck by how similar this is in concept to some of the found footage films that came out to similar hype surrounding its realism, like The Blair Witch Project or Cannibal Holocaust, convincing some viewers that what they had just seen was in fact real. The scale to which this panic actually happened has been disputed, as indeed it has been with a lot of the found footage stuff as well, given that not a huge number of people actually listened to the broadcast live. However, about 30 minutes into the broadcast, supposedly, executive producer Davidson Taylor stepped out of the studio to receive a phone call and returned four minutes later, face pale as a ghost, saying that they had been ordered to make an announcement that the broadcast was entirely fictional. By the time the order was made, the fictional newsreader in the broadcast had choked to death on gas and the first scheduled break was just around the corner, so the broadcast continued as planned. Actor Stefan Schnabel recalled sitting in the anteroom after finishing his on-air performance. He said, A few policemen trickled in, and then a few more. Soon, the room was full of policemen, and a massive struggle was going on between police, pageboys, and CBS executives, who were trying to prevent the cops from busting in and stopping the show. It was a show to witness. During the sign-off theme, the phone began ringing. Orson Welles' co-producer, John Hausman, picked it up and the furious caller announced that he was mayor of a Midwestern town where mobs were in the streets. Hausman hung up quickly, quote, for we were off air now and the studio door had burst open. Hausman continued, the following hours were a nightmare. The building was suddenly full of people and dark blue uniforms. Hustled out of the studio, we were locked into a small back office on another floor. Here we sat incommunicado while network employees were busily collecting, destroying or locking up all scripts and records of the broadcast. Finally, the press was let loose upon us, ravening for horror. How many deaths had we heard of, implying that they knew of thousands? What did we know of the fatal stampede in Jersey Hall, implying that it was one of many? What about traffic deaths? The ditches must have been choked with corpses. The suicides? Haven't you heard about the one on Riverside Drive? It was all quite vague in my memory, and quite terrible. Paul White, head of CBS News, was quickly summoned to the office and said, quote, And there, bedlam reigned. He continued, The telephone switchboard, a vast sea of light, could handle only a fraction of incoming calls. The haggard well sat alone and despondent. I'm through, he lamented, washed up. I didn't bother to reply to this highly inaccurate self-appraisal. I was too busy writing explanations to put on the air, reassuring the audience that it was safe. I also answered my share of incessant telephone calls, many of them from as far away as the Pacific Coast. Because of the crowd of newspaper reporters, photographers and police, the cast left the CBS building by the rear entrance. Aware of the sensation the broadcast had made, but not its extent, Wells went to the Mercury Theatre, where an all-night rehearsal of Danton's death was in progress. Shortly after midnight, one of the cast, a late arrival, told Wells the news about the War of the Worlds being flashed in Times Square. They immediately left the theatre, and standing on the corner of Broadway and 42nd Street, they read the lighted bulletin that circled the New York Times building. Orson Welles causes panic. One explanation for a lot of these reactions to the broadcast is that large sections of the show were intentionally produced in a way that evoked real World War II broadcasts, and so for people who had only heard a portion of the broadcast, it was understandable that they assumed that it was real and were, also understandably, very disturbed and panicked by the broadcast. 
Just to what extent this reported panic is true is almost impossible to ascertain, in the same way that the reports of police moving through the CBS offices are dubious at best. But the thing that this all highlights for me is just how evocative and terrifying the story of the War of the Worlds is in any medium. It's an early example of me discovering that stories are not simply gifted to us from some divine being like manna from heaven. They are written and produced by human beings just like me. And because they are written by human beings just like me, they have the ability to speak to us and move us on the primal base level of our own humanity. This broadcast was aired in 1938, and unsurprisingly, a number of other adaptations of the story were in the works at around that time. Paramount had bought the rights to the source material in 1925, just after the huge success of Cecil B. DeMille's first attempt at the Ten Commandments in 1923, and five different scripts were all left to wander aimlessly in the back rooms of pre-production hell before all disappearing. Among some of the notable directors who were approached at different times are Cecil B. DeMille, Alfred Hitchcock, and Sergei Eisenstein. Even Ray Harryhausen went as far as to produce pre-production sketches for the film and a test reel. Ultimately though, all of these projects fell through, and Cecil B. DeMille handed the project off to producer George Powell. In 1951, George Powell was working at Paramount on When Worlds Collide, his second live-action feature following Destination Moon. In searching for what his next science fiction project would be after When Worlds Collide, he stumbled across the pile of unproduced scripts that Paramount had accumulated for The War of the Worlds. In 1952, he tossed aside those scripts and hired screenwriter Bar Linden to tackle the story. Linden had recently worked with Cecil B. DeMille on 1952's The Greatest Show on Earth and had written the 1945 suspense thriller The House on 92nd Street, a film that Powell had greatly admired. Powell also had a sense that Wells' original Victorian-era story was in need of an update. He told Steve Rubin for a 1977 retrospective on the film for magazine Cinema Fantastique. The War of the Worlds was no longer as ancient as Wells had once believed. With all the talk about flying saucers, it had become especially timely. And that is one of the reasons we updated the story to the present and placed it in California. The other being the obviously limited budget and costliness of a London period film. Powell was met with great resistance when he first brought Linden's script to the front office. Don Hartman, vice president of production at Paramount, tossed the script in the trash. Powell later described Hartman as a former writer who was very good at developing different types of films, but who had no appreciation whatsoever for science fiction. He just didn't understand it. Powell was so angered by the executive's response that the normally calm Hungarian grabbed Hartman by the labels and subjected him to a barrage of expletives. Fortunately, Powell had the support of not only Cecil B. DeMille, but also Paramount Chief Y. Frank Freeman, who gave Powell the go-ahead for the film. Powell hired his director early on during the story development. Knowing that this picture would be dependent on the success of the special effects, he hired Byron Haskin, who had once headed up the effects department at Warner Brothers. As Haskin later told Gail Morgan Hickman in the films of George Powell, George and Frank Freeman Jr., the executive producer, and Bar Linden, the writer, and I would sit around and discuss the thing, and then Bar would put the thing together. Bar was a very pragmatic writer. We came up with some pretty far-out things, and Bar would use them as the kernel of something good. He really knew his theatre. His scenes played well, and it was very challenging to try to update the story into a modern situation. Also key to this film's success is the design work done by Albert Nazaki. Nazaki worked on the film at every stage of production, 
coming up with the concept drawings at the outset, storyboards for the set pieces in the film, and most importantly, the final designs of the Martians and their fearsome hardware. After a few preliminary sketches, it was decided to depict the Martian war machines as flying craft rather than the walking tripods in the book. In 1977, Nazaki told Rubin that, quote, if the idea had come from any place, it came from something like the manta ray, and originally that cobra-like control arm was coming out of the rear machines like the tail of the manta ray. It was one of those ideas that you instantly know is right. Perhaps to be expected, a large amount of the criticism that you might hear about this film is in its design changes, removing the iconic tripod design from the novel in place for the updated Martian war machines. The 2005 adaptation from Spielberg features a war machine design much closer to that of the novel, something that ties into the film's focus on imagery closely associated with the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Nozaki's designs were actualised for the movie by the head of the film's special effects, Gordon Jennings. Three of the all-important Martian war machines were manufactured by the prop department headed by Ival Burks. The machines were 42 inches across and had movable cobra necks. They were made of copper to give them an ominous reddish tint. Lighted green wingtips and devices to turn the cobra heads meant that each machine contained thousands of dollars worth of wiring and circuitry. The machines glided on overhead tracks, connected by 15 wires, both for support and to carry the needed electricity. At times, these wires are visible in the finished film. Jennings used multiple exposures to depict such effects as the heat ray, filmed with sparks from a burning welding wire, and the protective shields of the machines, which were simply small glass domes made for display cases. Jennings used multiple exposures to depict such effects as the heat ray, filmed as sparks from a burning welding wire, and the protective shields of the machines, which were simply small glass domes made for display cases. Other effects, such as the startling result of the wingtip rays which turn human beings to skeletons before vaporising them, were achieved through matte paintings, sometimes done at a frame at a time, in the same fashion as cell animation. Albert Nazaki also designed the Martians themselves, seen briefly during the tense scene in which a cylinder crashes next to an abandoned farmhouse where Professor Forrester and Sylvia have sought refuge. The elaborate alien prop was outfitted with an enormous three-colour eye, long arms with suction cup fingers, and pulsating veins throughout. The unforgettable alien suit was built by Charles Gamora, who was a veteran of the Paramount makeup department since 1932, although he was best known in Hollywood for his many film roles in a gorilla suit. Gamora's daughter Diana helped with the building of the alien and with the on-camera performance. It isn't obvious on film, but The Martian was a rush job made from chicken wire, latex rubber, and tubing, and it barely held together during the shoot. The film was shot on three-strip Technicolor, to great advantage. The Martian eye itself is broken into primary red, green, blue, and great attention is paid to the colour detail of the film, from the copper-red hues of the Martian war machines and the vivid green skeleton ray that it emits, down to the red, horn-rimmed glasses worn by Professor Clayton and the multicoloured chalk talk in which General Mann explains the Martian tactical manoeuvres. All of this is perfectly well and good from a technical standpoint and is worth celebrating and studying, but the main reason I outline this amazing work done by professionals who were the best at what they did is to underline the fact that this film scared the pants off me. For so many reasons, I found this film to be terrifying, but a large portion of why it scared me can be attributed to these designs, effects work and attention to detail. I was familiar with what I thought the war machines looked like in my head from reading the novel, but by changing the designs for the film, I was able to engage with the film on a level that I perhaps would not have been able to otherwise. 
The aliens were truly alien to me in a way that they would not have been had they looked the same as I was expecting from the novel. This seems funny to me now given that the Martians and their machinery look fairly cliché to us today, but I do mean it when I say that the imagery and design work really struck me as something that I had never seen before. There was a trend in science fiction films at the time, often treated as B-movies, that they all seemed to be less exciting than really they should have been. This isn't the case across the board, but a lot of the time science fiction films that came out in this period were more concerned with having characters talk about the threat or the conflict in a room, instead of showing them engaging with it in the outside world. This film is one of a number of films that actively buck this trend by functioning as an action film just as much as it does a science fiction film. The lulls are few and timed as breathers between set-piece action and suspense sequences, and the storytelling is clear and concise. Pyle felt that the clarity of the film had to do with two creative decisions made early on in the planning stages with director Haskin. Pyle says, First, Byron and I decided that we would never show the point of view of the Martians, despite the pleas from the front office which kept demanding that we shoot something of how they see us. And secondly, to add realism, ease the logistics and simplify the effects, we had Los Angeles always in the west and the Martians always in the east. All of the movement between the army and the invaders was east to west. This made a complicated story easier to understand visually. Here's actor and special effects artist Rick Baker on the film. Okay, War of the Worlds is a film that I, I read about in Famous Monsters, and my father told me about it. Uh, but it wasn't one that, I, that was on TV. I saw most of the movies that, that inspired me from growing up in front of a television, and, and this wasn't one that they showed, and I really wanted to see it. My father told me how great the war machines were, and the, how it was in color, and, and the sound effects were amazing. Uh, so when I was in the seventh grade, uh, I joined the student council, not that I was really that interested in the, the student government, but uh, I thought I could maybe convince them to show some movies in the afternoon to raise money for the school. So I appointed myself to, to be in charge of like run, picking the movies, so I chose War of the Worlds and Seven Voyages Sinbad and all these movies that I either really loved or wanted to see. And I, I was blown away by War of the Worlds. I, I, I saw it, you know, in, in the, in the uh, 60s probably, I guess it was. And, and the, I thought the effects were great, but more than anything, I thought the sound effects were great. The sound effects people still use today, you'll see them in all kinds of movies, uh, you know, ripping off these, the sound effects from this movie. The special effects by Gordon Jennings won an Oscar, uh, but the sound effects didn't win anything, and I really think it should have. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Like toys obviously, he didn't win a makeup Oscar. Look at Gene Barry here. They put way too much powder on his face, and uh, they should have at least evened it out. Uh, I know it's you know shot in some of it was shot in, in downtown and on the Harbor Freeway before it was I mean, really open. But this scene here has Charlie Gamora uh, playing the Martian in, in a in a Martian suit that he built practically overnight, and he was on his knees. Uh, being pulled along on a little dolly, and, and, and I really like the Martian, I really like the three-fingered hand that happens at the end of this movie, and, and uh, it, it was produced by, by George Powell, but directed by Byron Haskins. Uh, it's in color, it just looks so cool, the war machines are great, the sound effects are great, there's some amazing shots in it, when, like the shot in the trailer when the meteor hits the barn uh, that Gene Barry and Ed Robinson are in, and, and it's a really, really cool film. Before we move on, it's time for some trivia. 
Of the $2 million budget that this film was working with, $1.4 million was spent on the special effects. Reportedly, George Powell wanted to do the final third of the movie in 3D, starting with the sequence in which the atomic bomb is used unsuccessfully against the Martians. Originally, the Martian war machines were supposed to walk on invisible electronic beams, and this was attempted by having electrical sparks emanate from the three holes at the bottom of the machine. This was quickly abandoned for fear of it becoming a major fire hazard. The shot of the first war machine emerging from the gully has this effect. During filming, the actors were under the impression that they were dealing with the walking tripod machines of the book, and this explains the farmhouse scene where Gene Barry says, there's a machine standing right next to us. As an homage to Orson Welles' radio version, famous voice actor Paul Frees appears on the screen as a radio presenter about an hour into the film, doing his famous Orson Welles impression. Filming had to be stopped two days into filming when Paramount realised that the rights that they owned were only for a silent film adaptation, a problem that was very quickly resolved through the very kind permission of the H.G. Wells estate. I mentioned earlier that this film diverts from one of the tropes that was starting to emerge from science fiction cinema in the 1950s. But this film was a departure in more than just one way. Science fiction cinema was becoming in many ways a vehicle for cultural interrogation into the things that we were afraid of, externalising them as extraterrestrial, alien, monstrous and grotesque. By rendering very real human and societal fears as an other, it is possible to examine them at arm's length, sometimes with the run-on effect of being able to absolve any responsibility we might feel. Think of the Godzilla films or Kaiju films more broadly coming out in Japan in the wake of World War II and initially having very clear and earnest allegorical links to the effects of the hydrogen bomb. 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still has very clear messages about the nuclear arms race and the beginnings of the Cold War. Creature from the Black Lagoon, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, The Fly, just a handful of the huge number of science fiction films produced across the 1950s, all with very clear allegorical subtext about very real and very prescient conversations that were happening at the time. The War of the Worlds, however, is far less interested in participating in any sort of great social commentary. The alien threat is, in the same way as its eventual downfall, concerned only with its natural purpose, devoid of any great meaning or intention other than simply proliferating and spreading. The aliens have no great message for the humans, no lesson to be learned. They just want our Earth, and they want it now. This is no intimate personal drama film. The order of the day is destruction and terror, something that the aliens are more than equipped to provide. In a lot of ways, the War of the Worlds is the anti the day the Earth stood still. In a very similar vein to Steven Spielberg's Jaws, and then again later, his War of the Worlds remake, the technological limitations of the filmmaking end up working to the film's benefit, building tension and terror through a withholding and restraint enforced by the practicalities of having the hovering war machines on wires. 
When we finally do see the war machines delivering destruction in terrifying detail, it's all the more effective for having been withheld from us for a long enough period that our imaginations and expectations have been stimulated and allowed to take us to the worst case scenario, something that's then realised before our eyes in terrifying technicolour. A brilliant example of this in action is the farmhouse scene, also updated wonderfully by Spielberg and Tom Cruise in 2005. There's no great lesson to be learned, no message to be deciphered, just simply an alien presence searching you out with the sole intent of annihilating you, and the audience clinging to every tiny sound and every peak around a corner. When it's at its best, The War of the Worlds isn't just a science fiction film, it's a horror film. It stands also in direct contrast to the sort of fiction that was being written and the genre at the time by such influential authors as Arthur C. Clarke, Stanislav Lem, the Strugatsky brothers, who we've talked about on this podcast before in our Stalker episode, and Italo Calvino. And we do have to talk about the ending of the film. An ending that for so many people is such a disappointing ending to such an exciting film, but for me is really interesting and a layered subversion of the standard alien invasion narrative. It is within our nature to attempt to assign agency or intent to things that cause us harm. This allows us to make sense of it, to categorise whatever it is in our brains in a way that allows us to understand it. Something much harder for us to understand and come to terms with, however, is something that doesn't actually have any purpose other than simply to spread. Life abundant and without restraint. We can think of this in the same way that we view cancer. Cancer doesn't have any grand motive to take over the world one human at a time, or to collapse systems of government. It just simply exists, and it exists to spread. The fact that its proliferation of life comes at the cost of another life isn't something that is a consideration on the part of the cancer. It doesn't feel sorry for the host, it doesn't feel hatred for the host, it doesn't feel anything at all for the host. It just spreads, because that's what it does. Alex Garland's 2018 sci-fi horror film Annihilation explores this idea to great effect with its depiction of Area X, an idea that it's borrowed from Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. Again, if you want to hear more about Stalker and its approach to science fiction, you can listen to episode 2 of this show, dedicated entirely to Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. It might seem a long bow to draw between Stalker and the War of the Worlds, But not only does the War of the Worlds share in this concept of a motiveless force of nature, but it flips this concept around in the way that the Martians are eventually defeated. The humans don't defeat the Martians in a fistfight. They don't blow them out of the airlock. They don't upload a virus to their computer systems. And they don't use nuclear weapons. In fact, when nuclear weapons are used, they're proven to be entirely useless. Most importantly, the humans don't defeat the Martians at all. The Martians are defeated by a sort of mirror image of themselves, life abundant and without restraint. The microorganisms and bacteria that turn out to be the Martians' downfall did not have a boardroom meeting to discuss their plan of attack or require a rousing and probably patriotic speech to gather their bravery. It just simply proliferated, life abundant. To me, this is something that makes the ending of The War of the Worlds actually a lot scarier than a lot of people give it credit for. The idea that the only thing capable of saving humanity from something completely out of their control is something else completely outside of their control is something that I find to be deeply upsetting, giving the viewer a glimpse of just how insignificant we are as a species in the context of the entirety of time and existence. 
The War of the Worlds is a film that somehow manages to have its cake and eat it too, indulging in the glorious excesses of action films, while simultaneously allowing the film to sneak in through the back door to the rapidly growing and increasingly navel-gazing conversation of science fiction cinema in the 1950s. The critical reception that this film received was overwhelmingly positive. The New York Times said that the film is an imaginatively conceived, professionally turned adventure, which makes excellent use of Technicolor, special effects by a crew of experts, and impressively drawn backgrounds. Director Byron Haskin made this excursion suspenseful, fast, and on occasion, properly chilling. The trade magazine Box Office called it possibly the most impressive all-time entry in its field. Pyle went all out for spectacle, scope, fantasy, action, suspense, and chills. His special effects, trick photography, and results thereof defy description. They'll scare the genes off youngsters, and frequently adults too. Variety had similar praise for the action and effects in the quote, Socko science fiction feature, but also found that the story finds opportunity to develop a logical love story between Gene Barry and Anne Robinson. Both are good, and others seen to advantage include Les Tremaine as a general and Lewis Martin, a pastor who faces the invaders with a prayer and is struck down. Before we pull this train into the station, let's have a quick look at some of my other favourite films from the year that was 1953. In particular, I love Ugetsu and Tokyo Story, especially the way in which Ugetsu takes part in the rich history of Japanese ghost stories. I'm a big fan of Shane, Peter Pan, and Billy Wilder's Starlog 17. But it's Jacques Tati's Mr. Hulot's Holiday that stands up as possibly my favourite film from 1953. It's partially responsible, along with Playtime and Mon Oncle, for my love of slapstick comedy, paving the way for Mr. Bean and Peter Sellers' Pink Panther films to have a huge effect on my childhood. Marilyn Monroe dominates the screen in 1953, appearing in three different films, Niagara, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and How to Marry a Millionaire. Stanley Kubrick makes his feature-length debut with Fear and Desire, a film that Kubrick always looked back upon with nothing but disdain. Over in Sweden, Ingmar Bergman releases both Summer with Monica and Sawdust and Tinsel. At the Academy Awards, Fred Zinnemann's From Here to Eternity wins big, picking up Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Picture. William Golden wins Best Actor for his work on Starlog 17, a film that I can't recommend highly enough, and Audrey Hepburn wins Best Actress for her work on Roman Holiday. The War of the Worlds wins a well-deserved Academy Award for Best Special Effects for Gordon Jennings. Sadly, Jennings did not live to see the Oscar. He died of a heart attack shortly after completing work on the film. The five biggest films at the US box office for the year are Shane, House of Wax, From Here to Eternity, The Robe, and at number one, Peter Pan. The last time that I met Peter Vader was at a reunion lunch with parents and students when I was about 14. We didn't say much, because I was too busy hanging out with my mates in the park, flirting with girls and riding around the track on the ripstick. 
But in the conversation that we did have, he asked me how my writing was going. When I gave a fairly dismissive and non-committal answer, as was the case with most of my interactions with adults at that age, he suddenly became very serious and looked me in the eye, saying, Not everyone has what you have. It's a gift. Make sure you treat it as such. Keep writing. Peter Vader passed away towards the end of last year, having spent a large portion of his time in retirement after seeing our class through to completion, travelling the world. There are so many things that I owe him, and it does sadden me that I'll never get to send him a signed copy of a published novel or a pass to a movie premiere. So this episode is dedicated to his memory, and a celebration of the spirit of curiosity, creativity, and uncompromising kindness that he taught to so many children. Mr Vader... Thank you. please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever you're catching it and share it with a friend. Major sources for this episode include John Miller's article for Turner Classics Movies and the special features curated on Imprint Media's recent 4K release of the film. If you want to get in touch and be a part of the show, you can either find us on socials or you can email us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and a whole bunch of other people who just love films. My first short story collection, Where Lies the Strangling Fruit, is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have the link down below. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. That's all for now, and I'll see you next week. But until then, remember, nothing screams virgin like telling everyone you know about your outdated Donnie Darko theory for the third time in a week. We all saw that movie too. Take care.